0: I'm going to go ahead and start and say thank all of you for joining us on this lovely, lovely, lovely Tuesday as we are uh, starting Anti-Oedipus. After just finishing Anti-Oedipus, we have gone uh, some 40-some weeks, 52 recordings, uh, 140 hours of it total in order to get through Anti-Oedipus. And as we were looking back, we saw that uh, our earlier recordings were not really representative of where we went as a group, and we wanted to go back... And record a handful of them and start fresh and also give people on the server a chance to really have these uh, conversations with us. So uh, if you want, I am going to share uh, the text as I read. Uh, you can watch it in the chat. Uh, you check on my little name, you can read it as we go. We are starting over uh the translation by Lane Hurley and Seam. We're going to start with Desiring Machines. Every week we have gone through this and we've read a little bit more. You can just listen to the entire podcast. It's a book on tape and we basically uh, do a bit of an annotated version where every paragraph we're going to help people try to understand and you will hear me, especially during these earlier sections, held through the whole book, uh, asking questions and being generally confused. fair uh, way to put it. So uh, I like to pretend I'm the cipher for the people who... Uh, Don't want to ask questions, but don't understand it. Because I do want to ask questions, and I don't understand it. Uh, With that, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the text, and we are going to go paragraph by paragraph through The Desiring Machines, which is uh, one of my favorite sections of the entire book. It is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times, at other times, in fits and starts. It breathes, it eats, it heats, it shits and fucks. What a mistake to have ever said the id... Everywhere it is machines. Real ones, not figurative ones. Machines driving other machines. Machines being driven by other machines, with all the necessary couplings and connections. An organ machine is plugged into an energy source machine. The one produces a flow that the other interrupts. The breast is a machine that produces milk, and the mouth is a machine coupled to it. The mouth of the anorexic wavers between several functions. Its possessor is uncertain as to whether it is an eating machine, an anal machine, a talking machine, or a breathing machine. Asthma attacks. Hence, we are all handymen, each with his own little machines. For every organ machine, an energy machine. All the time. blows an interruption. Judge Schreber has sunbeams in his ass. A solar anus. And rest assured that it works. Judge Schreiber feels something, produces something, and is capable of explaining the process theoretically. Something is produced, the effects of a machine, not mere metaphors. It is so fun to reread this after reading the entire book. Uh,
1: yeah, and then, you know, there's little things that we can actually uh, notice uh, that we probably didn't notice before. For example, when they start and they say, what a mistake to have ever said the id. Everywhere, it is machine. You know, there's like three levels in the Freudian uh, analysis. The, 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 the I, the id, and the it. The I is, you know, person or like the ego. And the superego is the id. And then there's the it, which is this unconscious. Um, so, you know, what a mistake to ever said the id. So basically, it's what they're arguing for is a passage from the superego to the understanding of the hit as the pre individual um, machine that produces the subject, so th- even in the first sentence, we missed this the first time we read it, but I you know it becomes pretty pl- pretty clear because it's it's just not a play on words
2: yeah, so first of all, like what checks that in chat um the super ego is not the it I was also just wondering. Because, like, um, this this writing the it with D is, like, a very specific thing in English. And I know that, for example, in Freud's German, like, the S is just S. There is no distinction between the neutral pronoun and, like, the, the S. Um, and I was wondering how this works in French, whether, um, like... Freud's s is distinct? Yeah, well, from uh, now from the other words, I think it's translated. Like, uh, is uh, the distinction between it and it that is in the sentence? Is it um, present in the French text?
0: Let me check this out. Well, while, while Roger's diving into that, uh let's talk about really what they're opening up with and it's a hell of a thing and we are taking it and we are uh taking it for granted now that we've sort of read the entire book but one of the major sort of plays with this and guattari goes over it and Luz goes over it and throughout this book they go over it but it's uh playing back to the idea of a materialist philosophy of psychoanalysis Uh, one of the issues with a great deal of psychoanalysis that came before and i know we have ken in here who does a lot of lacanian uh, i'm a bit of a lacan fan myself uh, but a great deal of that is this idea that these thoughts are not necessarily these experiences these thoughts these the way that we're driven is not at a material level that there's a transcendental property entire thing Uh, and uh instead uh the entire play here is saying look uh, even Drudge Schreiber, who has sunbeams in his ass, uh, who's a, a famous case that uh, Freud had of a man who absolutely sort of went off the edge, but believed he had sun coming out of his ass, uh, their point is simple. It's, look, it works. Drudge Schreiber feels a thing. It produces something, and it is capable of spring- explaining the process theoretically. Something is produced. These are the effects of machines, not simply metaphors. Uh, the ability for us to uh, see these things not as a, a play or as something that's just sort of happening but instead that these are actual material realities that are happening inside our unconscious is if there is a thesis that we're seeing here it is that
2: I would caution against um taking this um, this this uh the sentence that the machines are not metaphors uh, for like in an, an, an machinic realism in that sense, right? That these distinct machines are like um, real entities in in the sense that they exist independent of their formulation and this text. Um, I think it's closer to, to something um that uh, like like the the uh, Bergsonian theory of images in that um it's like it's an aspect and tendency of the material that we are treating and it's an abstraction in the sense that it's less than the material but it's not a metaphor in the sense that it's not a representation like a doubling um of and in replacement of the real thing for another thing it's like taking something it's something it's something away from the from the um uh from the material reality in the in in its treatment in the book but not just um like sorry i'm rambling
0: no 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 no. it's 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 fair it's a when I, when I say that there's a, a machinic reality to it, I don't necessarily mean that there's literal machines uh, operating, that, but that these experiences, these uh, desiring machines operate as if they were machines, that it's not some metaphor or some idea of some transcendental thing, but that you have this sort of unconscious that has functions in it that produces, that works in a very specific way instead of this miasma of things sort of running around, which is more the traditional psychoanalytic method of looking at it.
3: I think it is worth noting as well that Deleuze and uh, especially doesn't really see a distinction between the material and the transcendental anyway. He believes in like a Spinozian one substance idea in the first place. So, That's a great point. Yes.
0: Hello, webcam parent. Thank you for joining us. That's a great point. Um, love it. Love it.
2: That's a, um, I've posted in chat earlier... Um, Um, uh, The blog post by Terence Blake, who has um, an alternative uh, translation of this first paragraph and some remarks, including on the translation, um, which is really useful to look at if you have the time.
0: It's fantastic. And uh, uh, he's a friend of the server as well, worth checking out.
2: Yeah, but if we go ahead. I just wanted to read what uh, Terence Blake writes on, on the and metaphor opposition. Uh, Kent, you're echoing. Um, it's just really short, two sentences. Um, there is an opposition between machine and metaphor that should not be blindly accepted. Mation is itself a frequent metaphor in French for talking about the state and its institutions and apparatuses and it is used much more often than in English. The real opposition is between machine and structure. The point of encounter between Deleuze and Guattari was Guattari's text, machine and structure. The polemic against metaphor is subordinate to the polemic with structure and the critique of the signifier.
0: And we start getting into that. Uh, we were actually talking about it right before we started this, the uh, sort of odd way that they intend to mean that they aren't speaking in metaphor uh but they are absolutely what they're saying here is a poetic metaphor and the way they're talking about it is but they do not mean for it to be as they say here a mere metaphor uh it's a it's a difficult thing we'll get we'll get more through that as we finish uh the rest of this section and we'll 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 dive in a little bit it's it's pretty i think
4: well one thing one thing to keep in mind is that when they say machine, they mean something prior to the distinction between nature and culture. So, the or in English, the term machine is a little bit misleading uh, because they're talking about something that is um, where you where you've you haven't you haven't distinguished between nature and culture yet yet, and that that's that's why the the breastfeeding is is the is the primary metaphor where you have two partial objects that connect together to become a desiring machine.
3: Think machination rather than robot.
4: Yeah, the- actually, I, I like I like machination better than machine myself.
0: I can agree with that. All right, uh, to the next paragraph. A schizophrenic out for a walk is a better model than a neurotic lying on the analyst's couch. A breath of fresh air, a relationship with the outside world. Linz's stroll, for example, is reconstructed by Buckner. This walk outdoors is different from the moments when Linz finds himself closeted with his pastor, who forces him to situate himself socially in relationship to the god of established relationship and religion, in relationship to his father, to his mother. While taking a stroll outdoors, on the other hand, he is in the mountains, mid falling snowflakes, with other gods or without any gods at all, without a family, without a father or a mother, with nature. What does my father want? Can he offer me more than that? Impossible. Leave me in peace. Everything is a machine. Celestial machines, the stars or rainbows in the sky, alpine machines, all of them connected to those of his body, continual whir of machines. He thought that it must be a feeling of endless bliss to be in contact with the profound life of every form, to have a soul for rocks, metal, water, and plants, to take into himself, as in a dream, every element of nature, like flowers that breathe the waxing and waning of the moon, to be a chlorophyll or a photosynthesis machine, or at least slip his body into such machines as one part among the others. Linz has projected himself back to a time before the man-nature dichotomy, where all the coordinates based on this fundamental dichotomy have been laid down. He does not live nature as nature, but as a process of production. There is no such thing as either man or nature now, only a process that produces the one within the other and couples the machines together. Producing machines, desiring machines everywhere. Schizophrenic machines, all of species life self and the non-self, outside and inside, no longer have any meaning whatsoever. God, this early stuff is so much more poetic than the later sections.
3: It's actually insane how much they're, they're saying there. I mean, almost the entire text is outlined just from that one uh, paragraph in, in so many ways. Um, particularly and it's, with like, this breakdown of, of territories with the, the schizophrenic who just has no cares whatsoever like when they're talking about all the celestial bodies are machines connected to his body, like they're being literal and that the schizophrenic actually believes this. There's no barrier between his body and the outside world.
0: And conversely, when he's talking about lens being uh, closeted with his pastor, forced himself to situate socially in a relationship with God, it's obviously him and Guadari having the same commentary, uh, sort of in their takedown of psychoanalysis and being stuck on the couch and how, Very often, we don't realize that on the couch, or in this case, uh, situated socially with the pastor, uh, the machines are operating in a very specific way, and the connections are a very specific thing that influences what may happen inside of that situation in the same way that being free out in nature allows you to connect with a great deal more. And ultimately, as they say, it's a better model than the neurotic lying on the couch. Because everything is a machine, you can have more connections, find more and discover more about yourself. It's a really it's 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 amazing to see this stuff after reading so much of the rest of the book.
1: A little comment between French and English: Everything is a machine. In French, it's tout fait machine, which is like everything makes machine. So there's a there's a form of action into uh, like not producing machine or not becoming machine, but everything makes machine. So it's like it's machinic it work. Uh, like an ongoing machine work, if if we want. So like the transition is is not that off, but just the form makes it that everything is a machine. You know, it's like you're you're making a statement that, um, an ontological statement that everything is a machine. But like what they're saying in French is everything is makes machine. It, I don't it know. How I, Sorry. I don't know how to like translate it correctly. But you know, there's like an action form into the sentence in French.
3: I do think that is actually a relevant distinction, and I suppose this is more present in A Thousand Plateaus than in this work. But it's clear that, I don't know how, what Guattari thinks about this, but Deleuze certainly views everything as being a process, as stuff in motion. He doesn't think of anything as a static is. You very rarely see him actually say, this is this thing. He usually prefers to use yeah, and, you know. something changing.
1: Yeah you're right and when you know when we talk about assemblages for example or arrangement in Jan Buchanan's uh, translation um what they say originally is you know you're not interested into the component of the assemblage but what the assemblage does so how the assemblage produces thing so there's always this you know this understanding and this preoccupation for uh the products the processes and you know how uh, an arrangement of a multiple creates, um, things that are outside of, uh, their own composition.
3: Well, I think also that there is no such thing as a individual, that there are only assemblages.
5: Yeah. Also,
3: because uh, it, it
1: always comes from the multiple. And I, sorry. If someone else wants to say
3: something, they can. Um, oh,
6: sorry. I was just gonna make a quick comment that, um, in fact, uh, later in his career, Deleuze actually starts calling individuals "dividuals" um, in his postscript
3: on yeah. the Society of Control. Yeah, or non-totalizable multiplicities is another one he likes a lot. Okay,
2: so I wanted to just go on to something that Brooks said. So the because Brooks talked about um, the. Lens feeling like, or that actually, Deleuze and Guattari talk about lens being closeted in with the pastor, and um, Brooks made the connection to the therapy session uh, and a confession,
0: and but, the direct edipalization because that's what uh, in the relation to his father, his mother, whereas while well he's wandering, he's able to actually make the connections and have discussions. What does my father want? which is actually having the real question about what is his father's desiring machines actually.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I totally get this in general how how um how therapy maps onto um confession. But um specifically in the case of Lenz, um I don't think there are any confession situations they are happening and the last time i've read this was basically when we first read this section when i read lens was actually when we first read this se- this, uh, this section so it's been a
0: while well correct me I he doesn't actually visit his pastor in the in the text does he
2: he oberlin is the pastor he's, yes he's uh, he's uh the the pastor is his uh, is his uh, host in the valley and uh, and the whole Thing like I think this what they are talking about here, closeted in, really relates much more to the general, um to the general situa- situation that Lens faces within the village and specifically in the house of the pastor, rather than any specific confession scene or anything. Because because I don't think that I'm not even sure. Like, isn't Oberlin even Protestant, and there isn't really confession stuff (laughs) like yeah i i I, like it's a minor point because i think the 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 larger point still stands but i think the opposition here is really much more between just um socialized life and the the schizophrenic free-flowing life process um in nature than um then the specific uh, specific uh, situation of therapy and confession
0: uh,
2: we are not at that point yet because I'm, i don't think there's
0: not not necessarily disagree specifically what i'm attaching to is when it says that uh it, he is forced and from what and again i haven't read this again since we read this the last time but uh, when he is forced to situate himself socially in relationship to the god of religion, his father, and his mother, when he's in the house, when he's having those discussions, I'm it's not necessarily even a confession, but it's he's being edipalized because of the social situations he's in versus the free walking out into the forest where he makes his breakthroughs, is how I read the text. It may not be a confession directly, and I'm probably conflating a couple of things, but that's the difference. Okay,
2: I, I don't think we need to dwell on this too long. Um we should like i encourage everyone to vote for reading lens in the lit group so we can have this discussion at length
0: true uh if you're listening to this we do have a literature group who basically exists uh thanks to jack and lou and a few others uh to uh make the readings that we need to read in order to understand anti edipus uh, something that we can go over other times so please uh join the lit group if you've feel the need, uh, and it lends would be a good read sooner.
3: Well, I suppose along that same line, uh, something else that's being subtly referenced here is uh, obviously Rousseau, who originally made this distinction between nature and civilization, and then in his speech, Derrida famously attacked this exact position, and obviously Derrida was a big influence on Deleuze, um, and so they're kind of subtly making fun of Rousseau for thinking that there was a this abstract like exact divide between nature and man in the first place
7: yeah i think that's right especially cuz like where, where i read the uh, the point about uh man without or the the person without gods or with uh without family it's a very similar point to what you're making there that there's not this distinction any more than it's like the family enables the person to be
3: yeah it's a it's a false binary that they're tearing down right i think i think it's almost a misreading to to think that they view nature as the escape or whatever. It's more just that to them, there is no difference between nature and civilization, or it's just a meaningless binary of opposition.
1: And yeah. The- and, uh, you know, the ontological turn in anthropology that, you know, has been going on for like, I would say, like seven, eight years uh most people you know in anthropology we maintain the big separation between nature culture it was a big thing and it it started to be deconstructed and the ontological turn actually espoused uh dollars and guattari a, a lot more through like firstly with uh, Latour, which even he doesn't recognize himself being part of this turn but like um there, there's this this uh this reversal where you know we believe that the the separation of uh, those two realm uh, are, you know, product of an apparatus of power. So, you know, there's uh, even social sciences are starting to recognize that this was a false dichotomy.
0: Yeah, let's uh, step back and try to, I'd like to try to simplify it. Uh, This paragraph is talking about uh, the, uh, What I should just ask, what is this paragraph trying to say? And let's try to really simplify because I'd rather not. Uh, we should try not to use uh, examples from later in the book as an example, or we should avoid Roger uh, a thousand plateau examples saying. But okay. <laughs> it, it, what I what I read into this, and it's uh, essentially what I was talking about earlier with lens. But let's leave the lens example out of it. Is that uh, when. Linz as a specific example when he does move out and he's walking through the forest he's making connections with the things there he is becoming nature it's not so much anymore that he is a part of the society or he's in the house or he's doing things but instead he's able to make connections in lots of different ways as he's as it says with metals with the stones with rocks with plants all of these things um the ability for sort of this uh overall connection, not living nature as nature, but as a process of production. He is not there thinking, well, I am in nature, I am separate from it, but instead he's connecting to it and he's allowing his connections with nature to, to make his brain uh, and his desiring machines connect in new ways. Because ultimately desiring machines, schizophrenizing machines, everything is everywhere. There is no uh, oh, this is a machine because I'm connecting with my mom, this is my mommy machine. It's like, no, everything is a machine. Everything causes production that is real at some level.
3: I think it's in general as well just that they're expanding on what they mean by a schizophrenic very early on so that we get a, a grasp for it in that he has no, there's no boundary right there. Like, he's just, like, going outside, yeah, this rock is a part of my soul, you know, whatever. Why not? Why, why not? across all boundaries. Why territorialize yourself to any assemblage?
2: Yeah,
7: and so like one of the big things here as I read this is like you're saying, it's an expansion on the first paragraph, because they're talking about how desiring production, at least how I read this, how desiring production um, enables all this, right? So like what Roger said, uh, machines are, I think you said something like machines are produced or uh, something that in fact, everything produces a machine. I think they mean to say, desiring production enables the machinic, and it, it, at the same time as the machinic is intimately bound up in desiring production. So with the schizophrenic, it's not the person, right? It's that uh, it's that all this, um, all these connections between machines are moving through this process that is schizophrenic in this case, which is um, which is flows of desiring production. This is where the big distinction with the id, I think, is. It's not as though an id is um, desiring all this. It's that desiring
0: production is flowing in uh, throughout these different machines. And it's important to talk about where this is coming about. It's a time in the history of psychoanalysis philosophy, continental theory, where people are really starting to play with sort of some of those classic ideas that had been very built into the way that a lot of this is done. Uh, Anti-Oedipus specifically, having the name Oedipus in the title, is obviously uh, a rallying cry against the Oedipalization or the concept of Oedipus, these rules that Freud had said from the beginning a man has in his heart that that you're born with these sort of uh, setups, uh, that you have these three parts to your psyche. You have your ego, your id, your superego, uh, the id, which is your, uh, baser sort of desires and needs, uh, sort of the animalistic ish side. Ken, feel free to correct me on any of this. Uh, the ego, which is, uh, essentially your yourself, and then superego, which is your sort of demand for, uh, uh pleasure, your, your, ra- your cry for doing more. Ken, you want to jump in and fix anything I just said? I don't
8: know if I can fix anything. It all sounded good to me.
0: All right. Um, So they're they're entering this, and and the idea at the time is that essentially you have an unconscious, and this is uh, something that still carries through today, is that there's this unconscious or subconscious sort of miasma where uh, thoughts and ideas and uh, everything sort of are flowing around and the things that come out of it, we almost can't help, uh, and we need to be thinking about this. Uh, Jack, if you want to fight about super ego and pleasure, I can. We can do that.
3: I mean, I, I, I don't mind uh, elaborating on that as well, if I might.
0: Please, Jack. Why don't you start, and then we'll we'll jump to. Okay. So my understanding um,
7: is that the id, so the Freudian unconscious is tripartite. Right, it's got three parts: the id, ego, and the superego as I understand it, the, the id desires, right? So in that sense, the id wants things and it's trying to, um, it creates a kind of tension here. Uh, what's happening like is the id will, for instance, say hungry and it's trying to satisfy that want. Um, the ego in relation to the id here develops to start um, to start sort of directing the um, the id because this is where I think Freud even makes the distinction between like the neurotic and the psychotic is like how it, is whether or not the ego uh, is basically directing the id or not. Does the if the id directs the ego, I believe that's a form of psychotic. Um, so in that case, right, the id operates with this tension with the ego because the ego is trying to release this tension and satisfy the id. So id says hungry, and uh, id sees. It, it, it will connect that with the cardboard. So the ego's role is to say, no, 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 Ed, you're not hungry for cardboard. You want the breast, you want milk, right? That will satisfy the hunger. Where the superego comes in is something like us, we might call it like a social conscience, and that's kind of, it's at least a place to start. It's not really a conscience in that sense, but my understanding is the superego functions basically in the social um, dynamic, which is to say, right, you shouldn't breastfeed past a certain age, right? Um, you see this kind of played with in Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon, actually. But the, the superego functions um, in the un- unconscious this way to now begin regulating the id uh, and the ego and how this tension is released. So how, it, how it's appropriate socially to be released and how it's inappropriate socially to be released.
0: All right, that's. I shouldn't be flippant with these conversations. Webcam, do you have anything to add?
3: Um. Yeah, I. Th- I think it's worth noting that a, a big part of psychoanalysis up until now, from both Freud and obviously uh, Lacan's like uh, extensions to it, was that the idea was that the individual had like a hole in themselves and then they like desired to fill that hole in themselves from things from the outside. But the point that like Deleuze and and Guattari are making already here even is that no, desire is an act of creation. You're not filling a hole. You're looking at things and you're drawing borders and you're saying this is an assemblage and then you want the assemblage. So it's not to fulfill something within you, everything, like all these desires are acts of creation.
7: Excellent. And that's part of their, That's why the Bricolore part is so important there, right? Because you work with what's in relation to you, even though even though you and that what's in relation to you is in itself produced in this manner. But you're you're caught up in what's available for connections.
3: I suppose it's connected to the Heide- uh, uh, he- uh, Heideggerian
0: Heideggerian
3: Heideggerian. Thank you. Sense of being in the world are one and the same as well, as opposed to this sharp distinction in psychoanalysis and the Oedipal complex between the individual and the world.
7: Yeah, exactly, right? This is where they're taking down these binaries of man, nature, right? We find man and nature as we find nature in man. There's not this clear distinction. There's no external self or internal self, right? They're taking down a lot of these binaries to open up space for um for this kind of simultaneity, like you're saying, too. Also, to take away, like, it's not the familial that enables this. It's not divinities that enable this, right? Desiring production is is uh, is allowing for this machinic um, happening.
9: Um. So when I like looking at this paragraph, especially as a person who was new to like this this text, my first thought is, why are we defining? Uh, human in like machine terms as in like its very nature and purpose is to produce as opposed to being and that being enough in itself and then that thought goes to him being in nature and how like that experience is allowing him to not to be freed from that kind of box of my purpose is to produce or to satisfy the expectations of the people around me. Um, but instead, I can just be just like a rock can just be, and it has purpose in its being, and it doesn't have to produce anything unto the world, and that creates the sense of freedom. In um, Anyway, that's what I'm getting from this paragraph.
0: So this is this is one of those fun things that I think we've gone over a bunch of times uh, alongside uh, this whole reading. One of the difficulties is the use of the word machine in English to me. Uh, so when we talk about the machines producing, machines have a lot of, the word machine has a lot of baggage in it within English. Uh, it's, it's industrial, it's very focused on sort of the classic proletarian production uh, it's something that has to be generated. It has to be useful. Uh, I much prefer thinking about, and the other way they talk about this, and Roger or anyone, feel free to jump in and correct me, is apparatus as another word that they use. And that tends to be uh, something that's uh, pushed a little bit more in their later texts. And they use apparatus a lot more in A Thousand Plateaus and their other writings. I know Guadari does in Chaosophy a lot more as well. Um, it's not so much that we have to be producing. That we have this impetus it's that we are it's that by nature humans at their basic level desire things that we want stuff uh, that when we're born the first thing we want is want we just want um and it's not so much that we necessarily have to produce or that there's this impetus but that because we desire uh and because we have that in us there's a lot of ways to look at desire And one is uh, that desire is a kind of scary, awful thing. And that's the sort of Freudian side of it, where we go, look, desire needs to be, uh, you need to put a collar on it and a leash, and we need to be very careful about how desire gets out. You have to watch it. This is the job of the superego, is regulating that desire, regulating that it. And Deleuze goes, wait, no, no, desire itself is actually just what we do. We desire, and desire is produced by existing as a human. And they go through sort of the, the setups, assemblages. Thank you. It's not apparatus, assemblages. Um, so it's it's that we produce desire just by existing and by moving from moment to moment. And uh, we, we get a little bit into this in later sections and also in logic of sense, sort of the nature of existence is this desire. And so it's not so much that production or work is the thing we need to be thinking about, but it's that... They're saying that uh, just by desiring these machines that are created with desire, and they're very, when we're first born, they're very simple. We just have desires outward. We want, we want, we want, we want the breast, we want to shit, we want to eat, we want whatever. And then over time, our desires get more and more complicated, needs uh, that to satisfy those. As we start growing and as these things start changing, society around us is formed as sort of this large scale thing that helps build these assemblages and builds these setups within us and connects to our internal desiring machines why i hate the word machines but it's not so much that it's an impetus that we have to be producing it's that we are and that desire is not necessarily a bad thing uh in and of itself we don't need to be ascetic we don't need to be uh you know chasing it away so it's it's the use of machine that i think pushes us into this idea that needs to be a productive desire and it's like no desire itself is productive is what they're saying but not productive necessarily in sort of the marxist classic sort of uh setup there but much more in the i have natural needs does that help at all with what you're asking um
9: yeah i appreciate that explanation but then that leads me to the next thought of even words like assemblage and, um, apparatus seem still pretty cold and clinical and distant.
0: They are. And the the idea is, um, the, the idea and usage of assemblage or machine or any of these is, is this concept that, um, we have an assemblage that produces. So desire comes out of me and let's say it's flowing like water. At some point that water needs to be diverted into different things. I'm Not all of us are the same. Not all of us are doing the same thing. I've got a whole bunch of books and video games in front of me and all kinds of stuff. How do I pick and choose what I read, what I like, what movies I watch, what job I do, what friends I have, all of these things. Their argument is at a basic level that it's not so much like the classic, I'm with the people who fulfill my needs, but instead that these assemblages that you have inside of you and that you build with other people by nature the structure of them uh, push desire in different places. They block it in some ways, they push it to being revealed in other other ways, but desire is being manipulated by the assemblages. And so it's an idea of thinking that the structure of a thing is what's determinant.
3: Right, I think that's just the simple distillation to um, her critique. And her question, I think, is that they're coming from, you know, a... Um, a way of doing philosophy that is structural or post-structural. So they're going to do a lot of constructing
0: language.
9: Yeah. And then with all of those understandings, I'm also thinking, looking at this specific paragraph and comparing and contrasting that with...
2: I think you cut out.
9: Oh, can you hear me?
0: Yes yes no. we, we lost you after comparing contrasts,
9: yeah I was saying comparing and contrasting everything you were saying about desire and and assemblages and all of that with nature and the the fact that like in nature uh <laughs> there is no conversation about what does a tree or a plant or a rock or anything want or desire and there is a type of like peace and that and um because because you're not there's like none of that turmoil of all this subconscious and things going on beneath the surface that we don't realize and you know things at, on the surface that we are battling with it's just things are just being and existing and yeah not necessarily wanting or desiring anything and that there's there's peace and knowing that in a way, we are, of, of that, of this thing that can just exist even without the desires, even without the subconscious level of things, if, if that makes that sense. Makes sense.
4: So, so I, I'd like to I'd like to mention that um, the, the reason they use the word machine is that they're trying to point to the reality of existence as. The primary thing they're trying to get at. Um, And, you know, because Kantian philosophy is all about possibilities and not about reality. So they're trying to switch to focusing on reality. And I think a way to think about it is like the cells in the body, right? So you can see them as like little machines and they need certain things to, uh, to, Continue to exist like oxygen that they get from the blood and so forth, and uh, nutrients and so forth. And so, and so, if you if you think about these uh, machines as being like the cells in the body, then you can see that um, we're we're talking about the real cells in a real body of an individual person. Right. That, that's that's what they're talking about. And so and so when, and and somehow that's prior to the nature culture, um, because if, if if that body didn't exist, then it couldn't have language. It couldn't be social. It couldn't have consciousness. And so and so they're trying to get at that fundamental reality that's prior to the arising of culture. And our ideas of nature as something we can exploit or take resources from or whatever
2: and separate right. ourselves from. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I, I sorry. I, 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 oh okay, go for it.
9: No, sorry, but I was just gonna say that that makes sense. I get that, but I'm also I'm also talking about the idea that and maybe this it could be right or wrong, but I'm also talking about The idea that this body that we have in this moment has all of these, you know, all these processes that are happening on a cellular level, on so many levels. But I'm also thinking about the idea that when this body is gone, when, you know, we go back to the earth, we also become a part of the earth. And there's just that idea, that continuation, that
0: you know then well it's it's one of those things that they get into with their later metaphor of the orchid and the wasp which is incidentally the name of our zine um the the nature of us is that the process that we're talking about here of these desiring machines how they play with each other how they play with the trees uh inside of this walk how they play with the metals and the stones and world the the process that's happening is where our subject exists uh, the sort of classic human subject this is where we i appear is inside of these processes in a constant state of becoming and uh, these processes never stop there's no point where it's like cool oh all the processors are done here here's your brooks ding the microwave's finished it's that these are always ongoing and that i exist i have this sort of ongoing uh with the tree machine i am becoming tree when i'm hugging it and when i'm connecting with it or i'm becoming jeep when i'm riding in my jeep i'm i'm becoming various versions of brooks pretty much constantly because the design machines that sort of are around us are always making these connections and it's very much focused on where my subjectivity is at any given time that determines who i am
2: so i i disagree with, with uh, this in a sense, I think, and I have to figure this out as I go. Because, um, so first of all, when we speak about desire, we are talking about like libido. We're talking about the energy of, that is actually directed. We, we're talking about the flows. And we are not talking about desire that belongs to a subject, right? So so this it's not our desires. It's not... It's not um, these machines' desires in in the sense that they are closed entities that somehow contain this desire. The des- desire flows through the machines, right? So, and then the machines, as I said, are images. They are cuts in the flows. They are cuts in the process in processes. Um, they are not static things in in this sense um they are not like a fundamental reality they are still like they 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 um they make up the entities we can talk about but they are not they are not um like a, a more fundamental reality
0: and um no this I is Lou's getting at one of the things that uh, Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Lou. I'm wanting to get to the next paragraph and charge a little bit ahead. Um,
2: Yes, I'm just I'm just trying to get to the point where we where we lose this attachment to existing individualities within this process where we talk about now that we talk about now because that's exactly the point what they make with Lens here. Lens is losing the his individuality by diving into the general process of reality producing itself reality becoming this is not tied to any subject in fact it is the opposite it's it's tied to the disso- dissolution of lens's subject um and in that sense We cannot talk about a tree or anything um, just being, because a tree, besides being a living being for one, is also part of the product of the world. Right? It's first of all, it's also an image, as is our body. Our body is also an image. Our cells are images, Um, but it's a process that has different tendencies that cut each other, which become these images.
0: Well, and actually the next paragraph is about that, almost to a T. It's about, it gets into Beckett and a little bit of the Oedipalization. Before we dive in, I want to talk about real quick uh, Oedipus as a psychoanalytic subject uh, because it's going to be really important and central to this entire thing. Uh, The core idea of Oedipus is that uh, when we exist, we exist uh, and born into a family with a mother, father, and my relationship is very simple. Uh, as a man, as a young boy, I am sexually attracted to my mother. She is my object of desire through early through the breast. It is the she is the first woman I've come to see. My father, on the other hand, is my rival for her love, uh, and ultimately my uh, the the sort of symbol of law, the symbol of power and the thing that is stopping me from being able to consummate my love with mother. uh, This is kind of the underlying Oedipal... uh, Intrigue. Yes, this is the underlying Oedipal thing. And so psychoanalysis, for a very long time, and this is from Freud on, spends most of its time actually trying to get us right with Oedipus. And they they believe very much, uh, the early psychoanalysts, and even some still today, I uh, believe very much that uh, Oedipus is this driving force and that when we're out of whack, when we're not properly Oedipalized, when we had an unhealthy relationship with our mother that was oversexualized or perhaps our father wasn't there or that our father uh was abusive or absent or weak that that's the reason that I grew up malformed the really big sort of underlying thing And again, the book is called Anti-Oedipus, you may guess. They're not exactly a fan. So I'm going to dive into the next paragraph. Um, And uh, if if, uh, you have further questions on on any of that or want to have the discussion, we have our chat uh, running in the background for a reason. Now that we have had a look at this stroll of a schizo, let us compare what happens when Samuel Beckett's characters decide to venture outdoors. Their various gates and methods of self-locomotion constitute, in and of themselves, a finely tuned machine. And then there is the function of the bicycle in Beckett's works. What relationship does the bicycle horn machine have with the mother Anish machine? Well, to quote, What a rest to speak of bicycles and horns. Unfortunately, it is not of them I have to speak, but of her who brought me into this world through a hole in her ass, if my memory is correct. Right, wonderful joke. Uh, Love Beckett. It is often thought that Oedipus is an easy subject to deal with. Something perfectly obvious, a given that is there from the very beginning. This is not so at all. Oedipus presupposes a fantastic repression of desiring machines. Why are they repressed? To what end? Is it really necessary or desirable to submit to such repression? And what means are to be used to accomplish this? What ought to go inside the Oedipal Triangle? What sort of thing is required to construct it? Are a bicycle horn and my mother's arse sufficient to do the job? Aren't there more important questions in these, however? Given a certain effect, what machine is capable of producing it? And given a certain machine, can it be used for? Can we possibly guess, for instance, what a knife rest is used for if all we are given is a geometrical description of it? Or yet another example on being confronted with a complete machine made up of six stones in the right-hand pocket of my coat, pocket that serves as the source of the stones. Five stones in my right-hand pocket of my trousers, five in the left-hand pocket, transmission pockets, with the remaining pocket of my coat receiving the stones that have already been handled. As each of the stones moves forward, one pocket. How can we determine the effect of this circuit of distribution in which the mouth, too, plays a role as a stone-sucking machine? Where in this entire circuit do we find the production of sexual pleasure? At the end of Malone Dies, Lady Petal takes the schizophrenics out for a ride in a van and a rowboat. And on the picnic in the midst of nature, an infernal machine is being assembled. Under the skin, the body is an overheated factory, and outside, invalid shines, glows from every burst pore. Again, going into the idea of what they mean by machine, uh, they don't, again, necessarily mean it quite in the literal way, being metaphorical, but it's not mere metaphor. Uh, I remember going through all of this. One of the ones I want to definitely go over is the stone-sucking machine that they mention. Um, the machine made of sticks, six stones in a pocket. Uh, character, I believe it's, I believe it's Malloy. God. Someone who knows Beckett better, perhaps, will correct me. Um, has multiple stones in all of his jacket pockets, and he moves them from one to another and then one into his mouth and sucks on the stones. He takes it out, puts it in a pocket, and he's basically developed this method it allows him to suck on all the stones uh, now outright as he said as they say here uh where uh, is the production of sexual pleasure inside the machine H- how does this machine operate where does it work and when we have all of these pieces in itself the machine itself doesn't actually have directly sexual pleasure uh, actually these machines are it's about how they connect to other machines it's ultimately what they're talking about here am i wrong about that one lou Roger, did I lose everyone?
9: I have a question about just the terms that they're using. When they're using terms like schizo and neurotic, are they talking about the commonly held like, clinical definitions of schizophrenia and neuroticism, or are they talking about a, a different philosophical definition of these terms? Generalized
0: both. The answer is going to be both. It's a little bit more of, I would say, when they use the terms they're using, what I would say is the more psychoanalytic definition of them, but it's very much a clinical uh, setup. Uh, but they're talking mostly about, uh, yeah, in the 70s, not now. Like we have to, again, we have to rewind a great deal. It's been 50 years. A lot of DSM changes since then in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's the time frame is important, but they are talking clinically. It's it's very much about the psychoanalytic uh, sort of way of referring to things.
7: Yes, and we need to be very careful here because this is a, one of the major misunderstandings with their use of the schizophrenic and paranoiac. The terms they're working with here have changed quite a bit. So they exist in juxtaposition with the psychoanalytic, with the psychoanalytic understanding and the clinical meeting. So it's not that they're talking about the schizophrenic in that pure sense of the clinic, they're talking about the schizophrenic process, which is where, which one isn't located in an individual. This isn't a person doing this. This is something the person is finding themselves in, while in relation to all these other things within that process, right? These are the connections they're talking about between machines. It's a skin, it's a schizophrenic process, so a series of machines. It's not a person doing this or a person beleaguered by this. Um, And two, uh, you see here, one of the big moves they're making here too is to say that like when psychoanalysis deals with people in this sense, right, there's a way in which Oedipus is taken to be the subject and is taken not only, um, instead of Oedipus having been produced or anything like that, it sort of starts with uh, as a presupposition right? It's kind of transcendent in that sense. And it sort of stands in for the person here. What they're breaking apart with their their discussion of Malloy here and, and the mother-ass machine and all that is that this neat triangle, one, in and of itself has been produced, and two, can't be taken as a given or a presupposed model for how this all comes together. So the schizophrenic this is just that what we said about the family, the, the deities, and all that. This process doesn't rely on; um, it's not enabled, nor does it rely on things like uh, divinities, on the family, or those matters. Desiring production is what animates, and they, I, that's what that last quote from Artaud, I think, is really showing, is that there's the machinic process is happening.
9: Yeah. So. When encountering these terms, read these as they would have been understood uh, when this text was written.
7: Yeah, I'll also uh, sort of read them with the realization that they don't mean it in the psychoanalytic sense. They're, they're yeah, changing also... the meaning of it.
3: As someone who's also like fairly new to Deleuze, I'll also
7: say that when you when you're very first starting out, you have no idea what the fuck they're talking
6: about. And then once you get further in, you see the terms more, even just a few pages, it all starts to come together. And it's also really difficult if you're only a little bit in
3: to even understand the explanations other people try to give you of the terms. Because it it just comes together the more you read, but you'll you'll figure it out.
0: A very fair way to put it. It's 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 a leap of faith uh in the text for sure, but it does start coming together.
9: Okay, and then last point, this is not, uh, there's no analysis or anything like that. Just mother anus is a very, that's an odd term. It's a very interesting choice of words.
0: Well, it's it's, it's a reference to uh, Beckett's character uh, who uh, says, the quote is, uh, wants to speak of bicycles and horns because it's, oh, how nice that would be. Unfortunately, it's not them I have to speak, but of my mother who brought me into this world through a hole in her ass if the memory is correct. And so it's the the way that he's making this connection, and that's their point here, uh, is uh, you've got this connection between the horns and then the mother ass. These machines, the way that these apparatuses operate, uh, sort of, uh, it's, it's meant to be vulgar, it's meant to be provocative, but there is connections there, and why is the question that they're asking.
7: And to clarify, too, um yeah that's that's exactly right roots and again they're trying to get away from starting with oedipus in the sense to say that to say that malone here is uh is doing this in relation to oedipus is to completely miss what he's saying in this this context yes there's especially because if you notice there's a flow he moves from bicycles and horns to the mother but it's not the mother in the typical like right he's talking about his memory of being being um uh, and I think this comes up throughout that play, um, of coming out of her ass rather than uh, the normal uh, exit. So this is the point: is to say that there's not like, there's not an innate, an innate there's not an innate idea here for this character. They don't think of themselves as being naturally Oedipus. And to read the footnote, which is really important here, um, in terms of Oedipus, as we as will be seeing below, the term Oedipus. Has many widely varying connotations in this volume. It refers, for instance, not only to the Greek myth of Oedipus and to the Oedipus complex as defined by classical psychoanalysis, but also to Oedipal mechanisms, processes, and structures. The translators follow the author's use and employ the word Oedipus by itself, using the more traditional term
2: Oedipus
7: complex only when the authors do so, and that's the translator's note. So keep that in mind as we read that. They're using Oedipus in this kind of, there's a sense of collectivity with it, which you've kind of got to, you've got to do some of the work to
0: understand how they mean it here. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue to the next paragraph. Any last comments on this one or questions here? I know we could spend hours. Any major questions here or, or, or parts that just aren't quite clicking, which is fine because we'll be continuing and things start coming together pretty quick. This does not mean that we are attempting to make nature one of the poles of schizophrenia. What the schizophrenic experiences, both as an individual and as a member of the human species, is not at all any one specific aspect of nature, but nature as a process of production. What do we mean here by process? It is probable that at a certain level nature and industry are two separate and distinct things. From one point of view, industry is the opposite of nature. From another, industry extracts its raw materials from nature, from yet another, it returns its refuse to nature, and so on. Even within society, this characteristic man-nature, industry-nature, society-nature relationship, is responsible for the distinction of relatively autonomous spheres that are called production, distribution, consumption. But in general, this entire level of distinctions, examined from the point of view of its formal developed structures, presupposes, as Marx has demonstrated, not only the existence of capital and the division of labor, but also the false consciousness that the capitalist being necessarily acquires both of itself and of the supposedly fixed elements within an all-over process. Or the real truth of the matter, the glaring sober truth that resides in delirium, is that there is no such thing as relatively independent spheres or circuits. Production is immediately consumption and a recording process, without any sort of mediation. And the recording process and consumption directly determine production, though they do so within the production process itself. Hence everything is production. Production of productions, of actions, passions. Productions of recording process, distributions, and coordinates, that serve as points of reference. Productions of consumptions sensual pleasures, of anxieties, of pain. Everything is production, since the recording processes are immediately consumed, immediately consummated, and these consumptions directly reproduced. This is the first meaning of process, as we use the term, incorporating recording and consumption within production itself, thus making them the productions of one and the same process.
4: So, one thing that should be uh, mentioned here is that there are kind of basing what they're writing on Brundris, um, which I think I think was published first in the 70s um, and um, or, or late 60s and uh, but it was a a, a a manuscript by Marx that was never published and in it, it there's like a a, Hege, a Hegelian analysis of the relationships between, consumption and production and exchange and distribution. And uh, and what they're adding here is storage or uh, or or the recording process or inscription as another process um, that's not really talked about in Grundris.
7: That could be. I think I read it as they're trying to talk about how Martz understands that production, this distinction between production, distribution, and consumption, as they're three, as though they're three spheres that just kind of exist, um, somehow determinant of one another, but yet separate from one another, is to make is to miss the mark, right? Because they're, it's a it's a complete process, which, as you're pointing out, they're going to say they're going to take this process of production, right, of production, distribution, and consumption. Um, and this distinction between the the production as industrial and nature right as though they're separate and quash that distinction right So it's not as though it's not as though um, production is unnatural and it's not as though the natural doesn't produce. Uh, so in doing this right they're taking this distinction from arts um, and now they're starting to walk it into what they're going to do with it, which is, is to basically um, is to reconceptualize it. I guess they're going to conceptualize it differently through recording, uh. Um, well, as we'll see later through the syntheses, but we don't want to go too deep into that right now. They just want to start out with process here.
4: Right. I just like to mention that uh, the uh, in in Grundris uh, Marx is analyzing consumption and production and distribution um, and exchange. Uh, showing how they turn into each other in a Marxian way, and they're going beyond that and saying, "Well, these distinctions aren't aren't the key thing. The key thing is that all of it is production."
6: Something that I noticed, and this isn't super related, but it kind of is, um, is that they're, to me at least, sort of saying that they're going to do for Freud what sort of Marx did for. The other leading economists at his time, in the sense that they're going to not only prove him wrong, but sort of situate him in his historical context.
4: Yeah, another point is that uh, there's a really good commentary by Daniel Smith uh, on this, where he's he's he basically says that what they're doing is bringing Keynesian economics to. Uh, Marx and Freud, and that so when they talk about flows and storage uh, and those things, that, that those are terms from Keynesian economics that see see economics as a flow, and that that's kind of what they're bringing to both Marx and Freud at the same time. Let's go back
7: to process, though, because this is something that comes up a lot in our discussions, especially in terms of like how to understand the inner relationship of the process, right? How does it kind of work in and of itself? So where they write, everything, uh, everything is production, since the recording processes are immediately consumed, immediately consummated, and these consumptions directly reproduced. This is the first meaning of process as we use the term, incorporating recording and consumption within process itself, thus making them the productions of one and the same process. So we already talked about how this flows together and works as a process in the sense of that um, these distinctions don't exist um, isolated from each other, which I think is fairly clear. The other thing I want to focus on is this point about immediacy, right? There's also a simultaneity here in the sense that like what is produced, right? These connections or like with the breast and and the, the milk and the mouth, right? Consumption is happening there, as is recording. So the process itself has the simultaneity, which is this process, um, which is the following of the flow here.
5: Yeah, that uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, that point about immediacy, I think, is really important because uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how is this different from Marx, you know, and where is this. Uh, so, cause we see how Freud is being challenged. What is, you know, what about Marx are they keeping? What are they discarding? And I guess my sense of Marx is that he, like Hegel, is a philosopher of mediation, right? I think Marx would say, everything is mediated. You know, there is a media, you know, there's mediation um, within the social structure. Uh, there's mediation by, uh, you know, I think he calls it the social relations of production, the class differences. And so you never get direct production, I think, for Marx. And I think that's what they want to challenge. You know, So Marx has that vision of a kind of liberation of society, right? And um, uh, the the capitalist class imposes a kind of false consciousness ideology, but then communism can sort of rise up, the proletariat can rise up. And it seems like what they want. Will- want to do is to, you know, um, reject that distinction, I guess, between worker and uh, owner or capitalist. It seems like they want to say, no, primarily there is this like field of flows, and you don't distinguish there. Distinctions only come later. Um, And that's how, that's how, that's, I guess that's how I'm reading the immediacy. Well, it's, everything is sort of this,
0: this primal soup, almost. You're spot. You're spot on, Al. Dreams, and I think I'm going to continue the next paragraph because it continues that thought. Uh, second, we make no distinction between man and nature. The human essence of nature and the natural essence of man become one within nature in the form of production and industry, or industry, just as they do within the life of man as a species. Industry is then no longer considered from the extrinsic point of view of utility rather from the point of view of its fundamental identity with nature as production of man and by man. Not man as the king of creation, but rather as the being who is in intimate contact with the profound life of all forms or all types of beings, who is responsible for even the stars and animal life, and who ceaselessly plugs an organ machine into an energy machine, a tree into his body, a breast into his mouth, the sun into his asshole, the eternal custodian of the machines of the universe. This is the second meaning of process as we use the term. Man and nature are not like two opposite terms confronting each other, not even in the sense of bipolar opposites within a relationship of causation, ideation, or expression, cause and effect, subject and object, etc. Rather, they are one and the same essential reality, the producer-product. Production as process overtakes all idealistic categories and constitutes a cycle whose relationship to desire is that of an imminent principle. That is why desiring production is the principal concern of a materialist psychiatry, which conceives of and deals with the schizo as homo natura. This will be the case, however, only on one condition, which in fact constitutes the third meaning of process as we use the term. It must not be viewed as a goal or an end in itself, nor must it be confused with an infinite perpetuation of itself. Putting an end to the process or prolonging it indefinitely, which, strictly speaking, is tantamount to ending it abruptly or prematurely, is what creates the artificial schizophrenic found in mental institutions, limp rag forced into autistic behavior, produced as an entirely separate and independent entity. D. H. Lawrence says of Love, We have pushed a process into a goal. The aim of any process is not the perpetuation of that process, but the completion thereof. The process should work to a completion, not to some horror of intensification and extremity wherein the soul and body ultimately perish. Schizophrenia is like love. There is no specifically schizophrenic phenomenon or entity. Schizophrenia is the universe of productive and reproductive desiring machine, universal primary production as. The essential reality, man. Sure. Okay, so just
7: to start the discussion, then one of the big moves they're making here, right? Man is not the king of creation. This is again to drive home the point that this is not anthropocentric. Um, the, the, what they're constructing is not anthropocentric, and it's not individual centric in that manner. Uh, that is to say, right? It's not as the the person; it is the center of the process.
6: Something I don't quite get about this, to be honest, is the idea that the process must work to an end, because previously, if I can find it, they say something along the lines of everything is machines, and these machines just produce, and this production just continues, and this desire is not something that is a desire for something. So I, I guess I'm trying to reconcile the fact that desire is not a desire for something, but um, so, processes are processes that must end. So,
0: so when they use the word desire, and it's it's an important distinction that uh, uh, Lou and a few others mentioned earlier, we've got to be thinking of uh, libido. Desire has a very a specific set of connotations in English. I prefer uh, the idea of passions. Uh, because that fits more with kind of the classic idea of libidinal uh desires, but it's this this uh this intrinsic flow to being human. And the, the thing with these flows is they don't really necessarily have any specific aim and mind or a goal, they just are charging it. The uh the way that the machines work or process works is a process always is about t- sort of self-termination, it ends somewhere. Uh my process of uh, when i'm a baby drinking mother's milk at some point ends that you don't eternally drink mother's milk that the goal of it is the satisfaction of whatever desire the completion of the machine you produce a thing for it to end they're saying here is that you should not be aiming for a goal i'm not uh, my goal is not literally to become uh, an american that's a, a weird, odd thing for me to say. Now, the process of being an American may be its own thing, but the, the termination of me having a set goal or defining that thing out is not what they're advocating for. Conversely, they're also... Sorry, someone want to say something? Um, the the second part that is, uh, you don't want to keep it going on forever is very much like the the infant in the mother's breast. You, you don't want these processes to be the goal itself either because that uh, almost uh, seizes itself up in its own way the the idea is to allow the process uh to sort of i don't want to say trust or have faith in it but it's not drastically off of that it's a belief in the act of the process itself not in a end goal and saying oh the goal is to have the process going forever the goal is this it's like no we need to be in the process as it as it sort of is transitioning and as things are changing as things are becoming i i just want to point out
2: that this is a point about the relationship that we as theorizing and politically acting subjects have to the process, right? And, and how we, um, uh, act on the process, not so much about the nature of the process, like a process for itself. It's about the process for the subject. Um, and I think um that's an important distinction when we're getting into this discussion because um if we if we talk about like like they introduce this with um it it must not be viewed as a goal or an end in itself, and he I think that's another caution to uh, to just affirming the schizophrenic state or schizophrenic process. As like um, as like a political goal, right? And um, I think to to what Brooks was saying, maybe there's also a point about in how far we, in sub as subjects, think about the process in terms of um, moving moving yeah, moving um, entities or developing entities becoming entities, rather than um a process in itself so uh, another
4: point another point is this producer product you know that that could be seen as a as a uh, a reference to autopoiesis self production and um it turns out that you know even though uh Deleuze is thought to be anti-hegelian that that's that's a uh a, a point that Hegel makes toward the end of his logic that there is this uh, this uh, category of producer and product together, which is which is like the relationship to a concrete universal in Hegel.
7: Yeah, but well, we've always got to be careful when putting Hegel and Deleuze or Deleuze and Water in relation. Right? They also follow that pro- production as process overtakes all idealistic categories and constitutes cycle, whose relationship to desire is that of an imminent principle.
5: Yeah, just a bit of the uh, historical background that's coming to mind is, um, uh, so I think when Spinoza was writing uh, and you know Descartes and all those guys, this question of uh, efficient versus final causes was really big sort of key question because like physics had just gotten started and you know, the, like machines and sort of mechanisms were being discovered. And uh, so you had that huge debate. And I I think Spinoza famously, basically rejects final causes, right? Uh, For the most part. And he says, everything is a kind of mechanism. And, uh, And the German philosophers like Leibniz and then Kant and everybody who follows, I think final causes sort of like purposes or teleology became very important for them. And my sense is that Deleuze and Guattari are following in the Spinozian line, where you know there's this like universal mechanism or machine, um, and we we don't really talk about purpose. We don't really talk about like having ends or having goals. That's sort of derivative and secondary. And in the first instance, it's like there's just this sort of automatic functioning um only for them it's not the functioning of like billiard balls pushing one another but it's something deeper like it's desire or it's libido and it's almost like they want to say the whole the whole all of nature has libido even like rocks and dust and sand uh and waves in the sea like it's all kind of filled with this desire uh, that's the sense that I get, and I think it's very sp- spino- spin- Spinoza-like or very like Spinozist uh, what they're doing.
10: Yeah, I I agree that the the rejection of the idea of a final cause for a natural object in Spinoza is very important for Deleuze and uh, and Gattari.
9: Yeah, I really this is I really like this paragraph, and I really like the idea that. You don't define the end of the process as well as we also don't say that this process is infinite because in both ways we're, we're limiting the process. Because to me, I'm interpreting it as we're imposing an artificial will onto that process instead of letting that process play itself out and seeing what it then produces naturally, organically, because any type of definition would alter, you know, what that process would have produced.
3: Well, it's also like showing a preference for a a linear view of time, right? That something would last forever or have an end. And I I think Deleuze would definitely, given that he's a big believer in the plane of eminence, would like to escape this idea of uh, strict cause and effect causality. Yeah. How we detect is the end right it's a part of the thing how do we say it's the end of the thing
7: yeah no i think you're dead on there right the second meaning of process that we use the term man and nature are not like two opposite terms confronting each other not even the sense of bipolar opposites within a relational causation ideation or expre- expression which they they give the examples cause and effect subject and object etc etc rather they are one and the same essential reality producer product so yeah I, I think you're right about that another
4: another point is that um you know he's missing d.h lawrence here a quote from him but d.h lawrence wrote uh two versions of a book all against psychoanalysis and it, and so i think the reference here to d.h lawrence is at the beginning is uh you know pointing to this previous re- book rejecting psychoanalysis
7: and because I know we've got to move on let's just make hit two more points real quick uh, the third meaning of process and schizophrenia here so right um, this will be the case however only on one condition which in fact constitutes the third meaning of process as we use the term it must not be viewed as a goal or an end in itself nor must it be confused with an infin- infinite perpetuation itself putting an end to the process or prolonging it in indefinitely, which strictly speaking is tantamount to ending it abruptly and prematurely, is what creates the artificial schizophrenic found in mental institutions. So right, we we've I think we've done a good job of elaborating what they mean the, the what what they're getting at in this third meaning. As for the schizophrenic, right, schizophrenia is like love. There is no specifically schizophrenic phenomenon or entity. Schizophrenia is the universe of productive and reproductive desired machines universal machines product the uh, universal primary production as the essential reality of man and nature. So desiring production is schizophrenic in this sense that it's not working through binaries, right? It's not working through um, clear causation and clear effection. It's not working through clear subject and clear object distinctions. Desiring production is happening without these bipolar opposites, right? And that's what makes it schizophrenic in the sense is that it's not, it's not as though it's taking um, cues from any like larger categories in the world.
0: Speaking of though, I will continue to the next paragraph. Gets us listen to uh, some Henry Miller, if anyone's a fan of Tropic of <laughs> Cain. Desiring machines are binary machines, obeying a binary law or set of rules governing associations. One machine is always coupled with another. The productive synthesis, the production of production, is inherently connective in nature. And... and then... This is because there is always a flow-producing machine and another machine connected to it that interrupts or draws off part of this flow, the breast or the mouth, as an example. And because the first machine is in turn connected to another, whose flow it interrupts and partially drains off, The binary series is linear in every direction. Desire constantly couples continuous flows and partial objects that are by nature fragmentary and fragmented. Desire causes the current to flow. Self flows in turn and breaks the flows. Quote, I love everything that flows, even the menstrual flow that carries away the seed unfecund. Topic of Cancer. We to read the footnote. uh, Chapter 13. See, in the same chapter, the celebration of desire, as Frank expressed in the phrase, and my guts spilled out in a grand schizophrenic rush and evacuation, leaves me face to face with the absolute. To continue reading. Amniotic fluid spilled out of the sac and kidney stones, flowing hair, flow of spittle, a flow of sperm, shit, urine that are produced by partial objects, and constantly cut off by other partial objects, which in turn produce other flows, interrupted by other partial objects. Every object presupposes the continuity of a flow, every flow the fragmentation of an object. Doubtless, each organ machine interprets the entire world from the perspective of its own flux, from the point of view of the energy that flows from it. The eye interprets everything, speaking, understanding, shitting, fucking, in terms of seeing. But a connection with another machine is always established, along a transverse path, so that one machine interrupts the current of the other or sees its own current interrupted. I think actually, Daedric Banana, that actually was almost a direct response to some of the questions you had, so that's nice. Um, again, talking about what a what they are trying to say by desiring machine, how these things work, the, the machine is almost its own, uh, the, the Bidendel machine, the desire machine, is almost its own uh, fuel and its own operation at once. If we think of it as a water wheel that's in in the water, you can't have a water wheel without water and water without a water wheel is fairly pointless. So you end up having these breaks and flows as a stream branches off or as a stream is used by whatever is around it. And each time a little bit is drained off, it goes into its own channel and it connects to other parts of a channel and it's used in these large scale processes. Uh, But at any point, any specific part is, any specific part is the binary singular piece. And they're trying to get down to the point where it's almost atomic, molecular, uh, which they will use quite a bit. And understanding the molecular way that these machines in us work, where my eye is seeing a thing, but it's not that I'm seeing all of these things. I'm seeing things because that's how an eye works. I'm hearing things because that's how an ear works. I'm fucking things because that's how a dick works. This is, these are the things that these things do, and this is how they connect, and this is the setup all the way across. Uh, and each step is connected to another, is connected to another, and it's this almost uh, ad nauseum version of the whole. And no, nothing on this one. I can continue on. Some of these paragraphs we found in our reading of the entire thing. Uh, There are some paragraphs that just very much stand beautifully on their own and are fairly clear. So if you have questions, don't hesitate to toss them in the chat, but I think I'm going to continue moving on. Hence the coupling that takes place within the partial object flow connective synthesis also has another form. Product producing. Producing is always something grafted onto the product, and for that reason, desiring production is production of production. Just as every machine is a machine connected to another machine. We cannot accept the idealist category of expression as a satisfactory or sufficient explanation of this phenomenon. We cannot, we must not, attempt to describe the schizophrenic object without relating it to the process of production. Not even going to try to pronounce that, I anglicize everything terribly. Uh, The thing that they type there in French, A striking confirmation of this principle, since by taking such an approach, they deny there is any such thing as a specific identifiable schizophrenic entity. Or to take another example, (laughs) Henry Michaud describes a schizophrenic table in terms of a process of production, which is out of desire. Once noticed, continued to occupy one mind, it even persisted, as it were, in going about its own business. The striking thing was that it was neither simple nor really complex, initially or intentionally complex, or constructed according to a complicated plan. Instead, it had been desimplified in the course of its carpentering. As it stood, it was a table of additions, much like certain schizophrenic drawings. Described as overstuffed, and if finished, it was only in so far as there was no way of adding anything more to it the table having become more and more an accumulation, less and less a table. It was not intended for any specific purpose, for anything one expects of a table. Heavy, cumbersome, it was virtually immovable. One didn't know how to handle it, mentally or physically. Its top surface, the useful part of the table, having been gradually reduced, was disappearing with so little relation to the clumsy framework that the thing did not strike one as a table but as some freak piece of furniture, an unfamiliar instrument for which there was no purpose, a dehumanized table, nothing cozy about it, nothing middle-class, nothing rustic, nothing countrified, not a kitchen table or a work table, a table which lent itself to no function, self-protective, denying itself to service and communication alike. There was something stunned about it, something petrified. Perhaps it suggested a stalled engine.
7: Okay, so let's start here, right? With the and forgive me for my I'm not even going to try and say Anglicize it I'm just going to butcher it the Cahier de la Brut as close as the French as I can even fathom uh, what they're talking about here is a series of um, a series of monographs issued periodically containing reproductions of artworks created by inmates of the psychiatric asylums of Europe so. Um, if you haven't seen this, it's worth checking out because it does kind of show what they're talking about here, especially with the schizophrenic table. They're talking about um, people who had schizophrenia in this sense, or some people who had schizophrenia, maybe not all of them, who um, created artwork. And in this sense, it doesn't have, you know, what they're trying to show here is this artwork doesn't function in terms of like, um, these clear distinctions everything is kind of happening together yep and I, i'm thinking somebody might post some of them um and it's kind of helpful here because the what the story of the uh, the schizophrenic table is trying to illustrate for us is how how desiring production is working with this table how it's its usefulness in that sense right is diminishing Right, so like the connections are starting to break off in that sense. The table itself is changing during its process
0: of production, having been produced um, during it. And and how I read it is um, when they're talking about most of this, they're saying like, look, there, there is no such thing as a schizophrenic. Someone is schizophrenic, but there's no schizophrenia as a thing like that we can hold on to or we can say this is what it is instead Schizophrenia is a process in the same way that a table tables. A table may be a thing, sure, but eventually a table gets used up, and it's not so much a table from the outside anymore. In the same way that a schizophrenic whose drawing may not necessarily be a schizophrenic, their art is the production of schizophrenia as they are outward reaching. Just like a table is tabling a schizophrenic schizophrenics, and the schizophrenic side of things that is a process is the part that they're extremely focused on and again their ultimate argument uh, I think is that everything is a process but they're saying like look even the idea of a table the table is it's got all the parts of a table but at some point it's covered in so much shit because you're using it for a table not really even a table anymore it's more this weird covered in shit thing and I can tell you as someone who has two tables currently right next to me that's case. Sometimes tables just get covered in crap. Doesn't mean they're not a table. Instead, they're tabling. That's their job. That's their process. Yeah. And this shows
7: us how things are connecting and disconnecting, right? Um, because this connectivity is changing, right? And that's, you're starting to see it end with the, the end of usefulness in a certain sense. But it's more about how the, the connections themselves also enable all sorts of new connections. And so you get the simultaneity of connectivity and breaking with those connections.
10: One of the, uh, <clears throat> the big introductions, I can't remember if it was Buchanan or Holland's to anti-Oedipus talks, talks about the uh, schizophrenic table as an example of what happens if you don't have the second synthesis. It's just this continuous connection of desire that kind of uh, cuts off the possibility of other connections and like overstuffs the object.
7: I don't want to go too deep into it yet, but keep, keep what they're describing here in mind, because they're going to bring this up again when they start discussing the body without organs.
0: For sure. I'm
7: not going to go into that right now, because it's not in this paragraph.
0: <laughs> but I do want to move and talk about the next paragraph, which starts with, The schizophrenic is the universal producer. There is no need to distinguish here between producing and its product we need to merely note that the pure thisness of the object produced is carried over into a new act of producing. The table continues to go about its business. The surface of the table, however, is eaten up by the supporting framework. The non-termination of the table is a necessary consequence of its mode of production. When Cloud Levi Strauss defines bricolage, he does so in terms of a set of closely related characteristics. The possession of a stock of materials or of rules of thumb that are fairly extensive, or less hodgepodge, multiple and at the same time limited. The ability to rearrange fragments continually in new and different patterns of configurations, and as a consequence, an indifference toward the act of producing and toward the product, toward the set of instruments to be used, toward the overall result to be achieved. The satisfaction the handyman experiences when he plugs something into an electric socket or diverts a stream of water can scarcely be explained in terms of playing mommy or daddy or by the pleasure of violating a taboo. The rule of continually producing production, of grafting production, producing onto the product, is a characteristic of desiring machines or of primary production. The production of production. A painting of, by Richard Lindner, The Boy with the Machine. Shows a huge, pudgy, bloated boy working one of his little desiring machines after having hooked it up to a vast technical social machine, which, as we shall see, is what even the very young child does. The act of uh, producing produces. Said A positive feedback loop may be the, the way to sort of talk about that. Mm-hmm. And the process itself is, is is
7: that of the bricoler, right? So it's constantly changing it's constantly um, uh, working with what's available, right? And in that matter, it's constantly, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, all this availability for how differences sort of, um, how differences are acting with one another and how this is being produced and changing through the flux.
10: One thing that's still not clear to me um, with regard to the, productive unconscious, the idea of the productive unconscious is the relationship to like need biological need. Uh, I'm not, I still don't really understand how we can talk about something like hunger um, without reference to lack.
7: Um, They're going to work with the idea of lack more directly later on.
10: Yeah. Maybe it's too early for that. Well,
3: I mean, I yeah. can elaborate on that. Is hunger this like single individual, you know, atomized thing, or is it something that only comes into understanding thanks to a conscious being? Right. There is no, the hunger's not in you; it comes from you. There is a human, and then the human is hungry. Right. There isn't just this fundamental hunger that we discovered in the world or whatever; it's created by the person.
0: Well, and anyone who's uh, had a anyone hunger. who's had an infant would also say that an infant doesn't actually know it's hungry. They experience a need uh, or a desire or, or something, and they, they're fussy. They don't really know that they're hungry at any given time. It's the same I potty training my son, and he doesn't fully understand when he needs to shit either, and that's the thing we're teaching him because it's a thing we have to learn, what what it feels like to need to shit.
10: So it's more of a matter of the production of anti-production and something that exists. Only on the level of a molar aggregate, such as a, a human being.
3: I mean, you can't produce anti production either, but that's they oh, don't, yeah.
10: let isn't that? I thought that was an important part of the first chapter production
3: of anti production, but we can save that for later. I just don't want to talk about it now because they make really good analogies like this.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a it's a I mean, with the even bringing up the molar aggregate that the idea that they're talking about here is that, uh. Things are things when they produce the act of production. The very moment a desiring machine produces, uh, it it is also it has a product. It also is producing again, and so there's this uh, continuous chain. We'll talk about that. So when they're talking about even biological needs, um, and they you know when they get into things like the body without organs and all this, the... The feelings and the ways that hunger exists for a human is not just simply hunger as we point at it, but instead it is a process. It is a process of organs that are generating different nerve endings, causing different sensations around a body. It's the the act of us saying, oh, that's hunger, is because we've defined the process as a very specific thing. Instead, the reality is hunger is a series of processes that are all throwing off different resultants. Things as they go through it. Yeah,
7: the weirdness about it is it's almost like hunger is a consumption because the subject is, you know, comes and see, we're going to be jumping a lot ahead here, but hunger is something that the subject is kind of consumed and is in that sense hunger having been produced. So the big thing is it's not like you're naturally hungry, right? In that sense, it's not that kind of necessity. It's something that in and of itself that like Brooks is trying to. To trying to describe there like biologically it's something that desiring production of these machines produce and we kind of find ourselves in that sense experiencing and I, I want to make that clear too because this is where they start elaborating too on like uh the goal thing the satisfaction the handyman experiences when you plug something into an electric socket or diverts a stream of water it can scarcely be explained in terms of quote Plain mommy and daddy, unquote, or by the pleasure of violating the taboo. So, the, this production here, it's not produced um, in terms of trying to accomplish an end. So, it's not consequentialist. Yeah. It's not teleological, like we said earlier. And that's important too, even for hunger, because in this way, like, hunger is not produced in the sense of like a larger end, hunger is produced very imminently. In the process
0: and actually we're about to get into how the organs sort of work and play i'm, I'm going to continue reading the next paragraph um just a quick uh please
5: point, point yeah just a response to that uh, so it sounds like what's really important for uh dng is uh that like in our basic ontology there is no there is no lack uh like what things are at bottom it's purely positive and so, you know, we have phenomena like hunger, but we wanna explain those based on positivity, not based on like some essential void or, you know, other philosophers will talk about the void. And I don't think that's really a thing for, uh, for Deleuze and Guattari, right? They, um, so I'm looking also at, uh, so we're, there were a little bit earlier, they were talking about the productive synthesis and the way they explain So it says this is because there's always a flow producing machine and another machine connected to it that interrupts and draws off part of this flow. Um, And so it seems like that's kind of how hunger would be produced. Let's say I have my state of uh, homeostasis or whatever, but then there's another machine that's kind of drawing off that flow. And that's what hunger is. Hunger is not some like fundamental void or lack within the nature of... The subject or something um, and so i'm wondering if that's if that's right because that would really that would make a lot of sense to me that it's kind of like there is a there is a plenum originally right there's a fullness of being and the voids they're just images or they're just um sort of secondary phenomena or simulacra there there are no voids sort of in the nature of uh of things.
3: Well, as they'll get to later, there's nothing to be inherently found within the subject at all, even. There's nothing inside the subject. It's It just produces, seemingly, miraculously.
7: Yeah, the subject has to be produced, right? And in that sense, it's not even like a, it's not a clear eye. But yeah, we'll get into how they understand lack, which is very different than like, the typical way we understand lack, more in chapter two.
0: For now, we'll continue. Producing a product, producing product identity. It is this identity that constitutes a third term in the linear series, an enormous undifferentiated object. Everything stops dead for a moment. Everything freezes in place, and then the whole process will begin all over again. From a certain point of view, it would be much better if nothing worked, nothing functioned. Never being born, escaping the wheel of continual birth and rebirth, no mouth to suck on, no anus to shit through. Will the machines run so badly, their component pieces fall apart to such a point that they will return to nothingness and thus allow us to return to nothingness? It would seem, however, that the flows of energy are still too closely connected, partial objects still too organic for this to happen, what would be required is a pure fluid in a free state, flowing without interruption, streaming over the surface of a full body. Desiring machines make us an organism, but at the very heart of this production, within the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized in this way, from not having some other sort of organization, or no organization at all. Quote. An incomprehensible, absolutely rigid stasis, end quote, in the very midst of process as a third stage. No mouth, no tongue, no teeth, no larynx, no esophagus, no belly, no anus. The automata stopped dead and set free the unorganized mass they once served to articulate. The full body without organs is the unproductive, the sterile, the unengendered, the unconsumable. Antonin Artois discovered this one day finding himself with no shape or form whatsoever. Right there where he was at that moment. The death instinct, that is its name, and death is not without a model. For desire desires death also, because the full body of death is its motor. Just as it desires life, because the organs of life are the working machine. We shall not inquire how all this fits together so that the machine will run. The question itself is the result of a process of abstraction. Um, And I will recommend, if you are interested, uh, our literature group very early on did a reading of Antonin Artaud's work that they basically borrow very heavily from uh, There Before the Judgment of God, I believe it's called, Jack? It's uh, To Have Done with the Judgment. To Have Done with the Judgment of God. Uh, It's in our uh, recorded readings on our podcast page. Uh, It's one of our earlier episodes, 100% worth listening through. It explains a great deal of what they're referring to and what Arto was getting at and what he was going through and their references here. It's too dense for me to explain here, uh, but it's very worth going into.
7: To start, then, um, this is something I've been wondering, too, and, and Ken, I'm hoping you can help us out here before we go too deep into the body of the organs here. Can you give us just a brief understanding of... Um, Undifferentiation and undifferentiated objects in psychoanalysis, because what what they did here in, in that in that manner was kind of lost on me.
8: Uh, maybe not in psychoanalysis. I can't. If someone else can, uh, ask again
0: check. for me, Jack. What was that?
8: I can I can do it through like uh the way uh, Young talks about it, right? Where, sure. uh, yeah. So uh, differentiation is giving something form. Right. Um giving something a, a temporality a you know, locale, having it have features like um like uh, density or texture, um or color and brightness, things like that, right? And the more differentiated something gets, the less you can make an identity with it. Um the less that function of identity works. Um um, the more undifferentiated a thing gets, uh, the more a, a representational it gets, right? Um, and uh, the more you start to lose something like a uh, final cause, uh, because it's not necessarily a static representation now. Um, and uh, like motion brings together a, a certain quality of undifferentiation, right? gets all blurry and stuff like that. So there's, there's like various qualities and it's, it's a big range between an undifferentiated object and a differentiated object. And through differentiation, you lose something like motion or animation and stuff like that.
0: Well, and it's important. This is absolutely a callback uh, to, I believe difference in repetition where to lose very much parts talking through uh, old Freudian thought and how energy sort of operates and how uh, the the differences in minute differences between every moment between things is actually how you know change comes about. Uh, the, the differences is the evolution. There is an undifferentiated object. It's almost, uh, I, I later in one of the readings later talked through it, I referred to it almost as a, think of it as heat death of the universe. There's no energy. There's no anything. There is that's when they refer to this death that there is no movement that it's, all is sort of like ice nine frozen and and stilted uh no energy left it's in that moment that everything stops for a moment and that's the the, the death they're talking about
8: uh then they aren't talking about sorry y'all uh i was just curious then they aren't talking about death drive right
7: uh, not directly. They're saying like the death drive is modeled after the body without organs. So see, they're kind of. This is what I mean too. Like with young differentiation, they're they're just opposing what they're doing here conceptually with the, with the typical psychoanalytic, um, uh, understanding.
5: Yeah.
10: Yeah, I think uh, just at like a very basic level, what they're doing in this paragraph is introducing. Without naming it, introducing the concept of, of anti production, which is the the body without organs rejecting the connection of the organs, but it's also the force that breaks the desiring machines apart. But I think that is related to the death drive. I think it's kind of uh, at least as I understand it, it's kind of their their answer to it.
8: Yeah, it would be the Freudian death drive, right? Which is like that Nirvana principle or like the principle of entropy where things move to their uh, inanimate form, right? Uh, But then uh, Lacan does something different with Death Drive, and it's much more of like an animating factor where a thing circles around a thing that it can't attain precisely because it can't attain it. And then you get beyond the pleasure principle and stuff like that from that concept.
3: It is worth noting that in this text particularly, Doulouse and Guattari are never saying one thing when, when they they very carefully worded things specifically to say, to speak in multiplicities, as it were. They always mean more than one thing. So they definitely are throwing shade at Lacan and Freud here for thinking, uh, in both cases, right, and thinking that there is like this drive towards an end, this death drive, death drive in the Freudian sense and the Lacanian sense that there's like no way to ever fulfill this
0: uh this drive the the last line there i'd I'd love anyone else to give thoughts because it's always read to me also as doing just that oh but we shall not inquire how all this fits together so the machine will run even asking that is a process of abstraction is just uh it's snarky french shittiness is how i read it (laughs) like it's it's not, we can't do that, it's it's a process of abstraction, we're no longer talking about literally how things work at a material level, we're abstracting away. And that's, I mean, a reference to uh, Lacan and Freud as well, sort of, again, shade at them, how I read it.
3: Yeah, I think to an extent they're saying, we will not be put in a box, do not put us in a box, right? Never stop, don't think like, oh, yeah, this is what they're saying, and this is that, and this is that, boom, Deleuze and Guattari, they're like, no stop (laughs) there there is no end to it or whatever there's no drive towards an end
0: yeah it's a the the process being and and, uh, the process itself being the goal is is the discussion of how the process works the moment we've effectively named the process it's abstracted and we've actually stiltified and almost killed it uh, by what the way they talk about these things
8: yeah in that process you make uh representations right and um uh, well, I had something more to say, but it totally slipped me. I'm sorry. About that.
0: No, that's good. I'm going to continue to the final paragraph, and then we'll uh just open up chat and uh, get through this. We've got 10, 15 minutes left, I think. Desiring machines work only when they break down, by continually breaking down. Judge Schraber lived for a long time without a stomach, without intestines, almost without lungs, with torn esophagus, without a bladder, and with shattered ribs. He used sometimes to swallow part of his own larynx with his food, etc. The body without organs is non productive. Nonetheless, it is produced at a certain place and a certain time in the connective synthesis as the identity of producing and the product. The schizophrenic table is a body without organs. The body without organs is not the proof of an original nothingness, nor is it what remains of a lost totality. Above all, it is not a projection. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the body itself or with the image of the body. It is the body without an image. This imageless, organless body, the non-productive, exists right where there is, where it is produced, in the third stage of the binary linear series. It is perpetually reinserted into the process of production. The catatonic body is produced in the water of the hydrotherapy tub. The full body without organs belongs to the realm of anti-production. Yet another characteristic of the connective or productive synthesis is the fact that it couples production with anti production, an element of anti production. That's the end of the section. Uh, we are going to be uh, next week, uh, we are going to be doing an hour, maybe two, on literally what the body without organs is. I just wanted to insert that because uh, please don't ask here, what is the body without organs? That is not a thing I can, I think it's possible for us to have the discussion right now i would love to answer your question trust me but it is not a thing that is easy to answer so uh we will be having a discussion for that next week please join us and we will be literally only talking about the body without organs and what it does and its effects now please any questions or comments regarding this section aside from asking what is a body without organs
5: <laughs> what's really um uh, uh, opening things up for me and this is relating to the last discussion uh in the last paragraph uh, where he says the full body of death is its motor so for desire desire is death also because the full body of death is its motor and uh i guess that answers so if desire is a machine how does the machine run and somehow the death drive or death instinct or this body of death uh whatever that is is making desire run and i find that really interesting because I think it's very different from um at least like your typical psychoanalytic you know why do we desire well to live and here it seems like he's saying no actually we desire because of death um and that's that's really counterintuitive um and then he goes on just as it desires life because the organs of life are the working machine so it seems like like the living body is the machine itself but then there's this deeper level. Like there's this motor or engine that's making it all run. And that's somehow at the level of death, whatever that means. Um, So I find that really interesting. And in a way, it seems like, um, it's kind of like they're doing this ontological reading of the death drive, right? The death drive is not just some material stuff in the body or some tendency in the body, but there's this deeper, like, an ontology of sorts or something transcendental or whatever um that and that's that's connected with this death death instinct so it's all kind of i mean for me it's kind of mystifying right but it's uh, it's interesting
1: yeah but at the same time they're referring to you know when they say um, when they talk about death or life or it's you know we're not supposed to be talking about the body without organs but there's two poles you know it's like a the machine as zero intensity or a full body, you know, like it's uh, you you need you, you need You need space for desire to express itself. So it's always like an oscillation between those two poles. And that's that's how it's functioning.
3: Um, yeah, I'll elaborate on this death. thing you were speaking of earlier and it's they're absolutely taking a huge amount of inspiration from both Derrida and Heidegger uh, here. Um, Specifically, in that this idea, this, there's this idea within common understanding, right, that there's this medical death, and then boom, you stop being a social being, you're a non social being, and you have no value anymore, right? And Heidegger was, and and Derrida kind of say, well, well I suppose I'll explain the Derrida sign of it first is that there's two futures, right? There's the predictable future. And there's the future that you can't predict. And the predictable future is not in the future. It's happening now because you can predict it and it's affecting you now. So it's a part of the present in the same sense that your predictable death, your eventual death, is always with you. There is no end to you. You always live with your death because it's a predictable future. I would say the same about that with regards to all of these processes, you know, when it comes to desire in general. is that every desire, part of every desire or process or whatever is its end and its end lives with it throughout. There is no distinction between the end of the process and the process.
7: Yeah, I really like your explanation there. Um, So at this point, right, we've got they're walking out what they're calling the connective synthesis, which is their first passive synthesis of the unconscious, which we'll expound on more later on, but just to call that out because they do at the end. So, right, we've got Desiring machines and desiring production in relation to all these connections, right? These different machines connecting and thereby producing. Um, we've got those flows of energy in that, and so with this this series of connections, right? The body without organs um, takes place. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to highlight here is let me see here. Desiring machines make us an organism the very heart of this production, within the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized in this way. From not having some other sort of organization or no organization at all. Uh, Let me see here. I got to find the part I'm looking at. But they talk about um, what what the body without organs does here, right, is it's allowing, um, it's working with this organization, right, but it's also working back against it from the standpoint of the um, of no organization or the possibilities of different organizations. It's the body without organs in this sense. Um, i trying to find the line what they say. The machines break down from the, uh, the very thing they serve to articulate. But in this sense, it's kind of what Roger was getting at with the body without organs um, as sort of empowering this from the standpoint of what we think of as death. Um, but it's not death in that normal sense, right? It's death in the sense of no, organi- no organization or the possibilities of different organizations. So, like, uh, potentiality in that sense.
3: If I could take a crack at anti-production as well, this really brought
0: up. Oh, 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 please. Yeah. Oh, please.
3: So, I, I think there's a mistake when we try to say anti-production is like against production or the opposite of production. I think maybe a better way of putting it would be a production that it is not production, and so this idea of producing anti-production never actually happens. Like anti-production can't be produced, and they elaborate on this later. And I'm not I'm not allowed to talk about the body of the organ but it's an illusion, right? It just seems like anti-production is produced, but it's not anything. It's not a production. It's like a it's more like a record or, or, or a, a scripture, and it just seems like things. Connect to the anti-production, but they actually like are miraculously, almost miraculously connected to it. But it's all ethereal.
0: Well, so this is why uh, my sentence that, and I, and I'm not saying it's exactly right. And Jack already he said not quite. I'm like, yeah, I know it's not quite, but I'm trying to point at the thing um, as I've understood. Let's say in uh, capitalism, uh, anti-production is a series of uh, edicts. is part of the sort of way that capital works or a king may put out edicts that tells us not to do certain things or that certain things are anathema society may tell us not to do stuff those elements being integrated into the desiring machines are anti-production they are the element that is essentially a version of repression but it's always a a, anti-production isn't something we make internally to our desiring machines it's something that exists outside of it and comes at a one i don't want to use the word outside because i know there really isn't one but uh, we're talking effectively about molar- It's a
3: fake outside, effectively.
0: Yeah, it's a fake outside. It's a, something that's more molar than molecular, though. Uh, so it's it's part of the secondary, the molar regime rather than mo- the molecular uh, that is determining that you can't do X and Y that is a a break in the flows that is uh, not necessarily something that is, I don't want to say natural, but is, is not a real break in flow.
7: Mm-hmm. I, I found a the quote i was looking for but yeah the body without organs is connecting production with anti-production the only thing i'm critical of there is the use of repression because it's that has a lot of baggage in it and they're going to work with that in terms of representation that later on so right we're talking about how production is sort of work uh kind of like what you were saying um uh i'm trying to think of your name it was owl Anyways, yeah, it's like you're saying where there's this connection between the two through the body without organs that they're working on each other. But it's not as though um, it's not a transcendence in that sense. Um, the, the sentence I really wanted to focus on was the automata stopped dead and set free the unorganized mass they once served to articulate. The full body without organs is the unproductive and they go on to say that. Uh, to explain it there, but in this sense, it's like you're saying with the body without organs, it, the desiring machines seem to miraculate, and we'll see later where they seem to repulse in that sense too. But the the body without organs is empowering all this in relation to desiring production, and desiring production in that sense is um, it's productive and it's anti-productive, right? It's not um, distinct from the two.
3: Yeah, I mean, we can't talk about the BWO yet, but as much so, I'd like the better to save that for later. But, I mean, I do. I think they may be making some like Marxian statement as well. I know D- Dulles likes Marxian a lot as well, but I think it is a trap to think of anti-production as something that stops production. I think it's like an A production, like nothing is produced. It just isn't production rather than it stops production.
0: Yeah, it's it's not a uh, matter and antimatter. And that's the, the anti really makes it difficult to sort of work my brain yeah. separately than that. It's not antimatter where you combine them and then the thing goes away. It's a non production, almost the same way that like uh, LaRuel talks about non philosophy. It's not anti philosophy or anti psychiatry. It's non, not that. It's, it's, uh, it's everything I that a that a is production, I think. a production i think works best yeah it's a fun one and we are going to be continuing anti despite us finished our reading and us sort of restarting anti is going to be a foundational thing that we continue on the server for essentially the foreseeable future so any of you who are currently reading it please continue join us on it uh and we plan fully to continue to have these discussions thank all of you for joining for sure very much